Before we get rolling with the podcast today, just want to let you know about Cyber Monday coming up for TechSmith. It's the biggest sale of the year on November 29th and November 30th, 2021. Make sure you check out all the great prices because they only happen like this once a year. So don't miss it. Cyber Monday this year on the TechSmith website, available only online. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. So glad that you're all here with us today and listening to the Visual Lounge. We're so grateful for everybody that tunes in and listens after the fact as well. We've got another great show for you. We're gonna be talking about visual design, visual thinking, all the things around visuals because we've got a fantastic guest. But before we do that, just a reminder, if you like what you hear in the show today, at any point, feel free to tag us on social media. Tell us what you're learning from these shows. That helps us to know that we're doing good stuff. Two, we like to see the process. We like to see the outcome of what we're doing because as someone who creates a lot of learning and instruction, and we know this isn't like a formal class or anything like that, but we like to know that it's helping you maybe have new thoughts or think about something that you didn't think about before. So let's get on with today's guest. So Connie, Connie, I, I knew you said it and I, I should have practiced more. Malamed, I think I got it right. I yep. got it right. Malamed helps people learn and build instructional design skills at Mastering Instructional Design. She's a consultant, author, and speaker in the fields of online learning and visual communication. Connie is the author of Visual Design Solutions and Visual Language for Designers. She also publishes the eLearning Coach website and podcast. She was honored with the Learning Guild's Guildmaster Award in 2018 for contributions to the learning technology uh, technologies industry. And someone just, you know, I've seen Connie at different events and I've got to know her a little, you know, through those lenses, not actually personally. So I'm really excited for today and to have her on the show. So Connie, welcome to the Visual Lounge. Thank you, Matt. Uh, that In that photo, I think I look like I'm dead, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm totally alive here. Hey, everyone. Well, that's, you know, that's the best you can do, right? Sometimes your photos are photos. You, it is what you... <laughs> You, you do the best you can. Well, Connie, uh, you know, so thank thank you so much for joining me today. And like I said, I've seen you at different events. I, I, I've been in this kind of similar circles as you, seeing you at, at places. And it's, it's always, I think it's that nervousness of like, oh, well, I, how could I introduce myself to someone? Uh, so I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to you, especially about our topic today about, about using visuals and visual design from a learning perspective, because uh, I know it's something that I've thought about. I don't know that I'm good at it, but I've thought about. So let, let's start just to give kind of a broad kind of context here. Um, how did you get involved in kind of these ideas of learning and visuals and bring them together? I was always interested in art, drew a lot when I was a kid, um, wasn't particularly good, majored in art in college. Then someone told me, well, you better major in art education. So I did that, you know. I didn't know what I was doing. Then when I grew up and got into things, I know I found out about the field of instructional design. I knew that's what I wanted to do while while in the field. And, um, you know, just being around, I noticed that people were uh, didn't have training in any kind of graphic design, art, visual design. So I just wanted to leap in there and fill the gap. So I, I have a question and maybe you get asked this a lot. So you said you're not good at art, but you then pursued art. Why? Because I think I'm not good at stuff. I'm like, oh, nope, stay away. I mean, I was good enough to get a, to take art courses in college, but I just yeah. mean, I wasn't one of those standout people where you go, oh my gosh, they're going to be famous. They're going to make it. Um, but uh, it turns out that when I got on the computer, you know, I was always drawing or painting. When I got on the computer, I discovered my skills got better. And graphic design or visual design and art are um, not the same thing. So with graphic design or visual design, which is, I think of a, as a broader term, you are uh, making something to be used. You are it, it has to work in a way that art doesn't. Art just can be interpreted in many, many different ways. But with visual design, we, want, we have one way. We have one, a message that we want people to understand. And you have to be able to communicate that message. And the computer can just kind of uh, boost your skills. It's a lot easier to draw a line in the on the computer than it is um, 
by hand. But of course, I still have my sketch pad with me and, you know, I use it sometimes. Well, I, I love that. I love this distinction between art and design because I, I know, you know, we talk a lot about video on the show and uh, a lot of people get really like, oh, I'm not, I, I can't make anything that's really good because they get so caught up in the uh, production of it, right? Like they want to make a Hollywood movie, which I think what I heard you say is design. You've got kind of like, we want you to focus on this one thing where art is often open to interpretation. You want people to view it through whatever lens and medium they're coming to it from, right? So I, I, I love that. Um, so for someone who's maybe getting hung up on that kind of, they're, they're feeling like, oh gosh, I'm just not good enough. And I love what you said too, that the computer will make you better because same here. I, I have an iPad and an Apple Pencil, and I love when I can click and drag and hold, and it makes a straight line, <laughs> right? Right? Like, it makes Fulfilling. it easy for me. Right. So w what advice do you give to, to, would you give to individuals who are saying, just feeling that kind of like, oh, I can't really do this, uh, to help mm. them to maybe have that confidence? I do have some advice because I'm very motherly. Um, let me say that, first of all, visual design is utilitarian. You do not have to be able to render. And I'll never forget my first instruction design job. I'm working with the art, you know, the graphic designer. And I said, can you draw this? And he said, no, I'm not an illustrator. I can't draw that. And it was just like, bam, okay. So there's graphic designers and there's illustrators. And some, many times that person is one and the same and many times it isn't. So if, if that was a professional graphic designer who cannot render with a pencil, then I'm telling all of you out there that you can do uh, just as well at visual design. You do not need to draw. I mean, as you can see, uh, geometric shapes, cutting out photos, um, working, learning how to work with vector graphics. You know, all of this is enabling and fulfilling and you don't have to be able to draw. The two things are pretty kind of different, different skills. Yeah. Well, I remember my master's program uh, in, for instructional design, one of the first uh, semesters, I think they had us working on some design project and they gave us tracing paper. <laughs> and, and like, I mean, this was, you know, computers were used. It wasn't like it was early, early, early days. I'm not that old, but it gave us tracing paper and said, okay, this is how you can make easy stuff. Like you need some icons. Oh trace them, you know, like, or you want a person out, a silhouette of a person, trace it. So I, I, I again, a really great distinction. Let's shift that a little bit, because I think one thing I imagine that both these kind of sides have in play or together that you need creativity. And what's mm. the, what's the role of creativity? If you're going to be a designer, that's not necessarily rendering the final outcome. Is there creativity needed to think about how visuals and layout and all this stuff's going to play into things? I think it's a combination of learning the foundation principles of visual design and your innate creativity. Every person that watches this or listens to this was creative as a child. So you just kind of have to get uh, tuned in to that creativity that everyone has inside. Um, I think people define creativity too, in too narrow of a range. When you come up with a great idea for something to cook, when you create, uh, come up with a interesting approach to a scenario, when you come up with a way to solve any kind of problem, whether it's with your children, uh, in a relationship, in the world, at work, you're being creative. You're doing creative problem solving. So don't define it uh, so narrowly. And I think you'll gain more confidence. You know, as far as getting better, it's pretty important to not compare yourself to someone else. When I teach visual design classes, I always tell people, keep working, learn the foundation principles, keep working and practicing, and then compare your work with your own work six months later and just see how much you've improved. You know, one of the best ways to improve is simply get rid of all the clutter. That'll make your work look a lot better just right there. That's, that's, that's great advice. And it's so hard to do is to keep white, like that white space, get rid of the things, um, you know, keep to keep pulling stuff off because sometimes you're like, I love that little piece there. I really want it. And it, but it, it really does make a, a huge difference. So you mentioned those kind of foundational things and, and, you know, we're not here to teach everybody everything about visual design because you've got 
two really good books that can help with some of that, right? Um, but I'm curious if, you know, someone is listening to this and they're like, oh gosh, I, I do need to get better at this. Are, you know, obviously getting rid of stuff is a great one, but what are some of the other kind of high, from a high level perspective that things that people should learn that will make them better at this process, whether they're doing it for education purposes or for anything else? Sure. Well, definitely one is considering white space, which is the space between elements, between letters, and making sure that there's breathing room for the eyes, so to speak, so the eyes can travel around and feel comfortable. Uh, the mind is always saying, our minds are saying, always trying to figure something out. What does this mean? We're always looking for meaning. So when things are too cluttered, especially in a learning environment, people won't be able to understand uh, what to look at and what the message is that you're trying to communicate when it's too cluttered. So keep the, you know, having sufficient white space is pretty important for our perception to be able to scan it and process it and make meaning out of it. Another second principle is about directing the eyes. A lot of people probably heard about a visual hierarchy. And if you haven't, that's directing the eyes to look at the item that you want people to see first, the focal point. And oftentimes there's a second and a third level of directing the eyes. So whenever you want someone to really notice something first, you put that at the top or on the left. And that's where the eye goes first when it scans a page or looks at the screen. So developing and thinking about the visual hierarchy is principle number two. I could go on for uh, 12 principles, <laughs> but I thought I'd stop there. No, that's, those, are, those are fantastic. So I w let's talk about the hierarchy a little bit because I, I, I was listening to an, an interview that you did with someone and, and I know you talked about hierarchy there as well. And it, it got me thinking, um, obviously there's the kind of, you know, like you said, top, left that's key indicator uh, it might be different obviously for for different cultures if they kind of flow different directions Maybe. but yeah. but are there other elements that go into this that you would say like are really good at drawing attention you know I, and I, I come at this from a very biased perspective because i live in the world of TechSmith and we have our tools like snag and things like that and i i think about a lot about color and like you know thing boxes and arrows and and those are very typical, you know, like typically used in instructional design, right. like in diagrams and things like that. What what role should those play? And I'm, I'm guessing it's like everything else, sparing is, is best, but uh, any thoughts or advice on, on those type of elements in terms of drawing attention? I have so many thoughts about that. So um, let me tell you the uh, a few of the common, it sounds like you already know what they are, but uh, for everyone else who may not, a few of the other common ways to bring something, make something a focal point. So the first was positioning, top and or left. Another is size. Whatever is largest on the page or screen will be looked at first. Graphics are often looked at first. Um, if you have really large text, it might compete with it. Uh, arrow, visual cues like arrows and highlights direct attention. Movement directs attention. I always think of when you go to weather.com, there are always the, often these moving little gifs or something moving, and your eye just wants to keep going over there. And that's a very primitive function. We, we almost can't help but look at something moving. Um, what are some other ones? Yeah, I mean, I think, gosh, color, size, weight, uh, movement are all really good. Uh, 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 you know, it's 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 interesting to me that we we probably intuitively know some of this stuff, right? Like yes. I think we we go and we look around and we can probably see it. So I'm curious when you're when you're making designs, you know, you're doing this. How do you decide like what to apply? Because you have all these tools, and you maybe have maybe more tools than others because you've been studying this for so long. You understand kind of the 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 science behind some of it so what what are some of the key factors in making decisions because i mean we could probably name off 12 other things and there's all these rules but i think in the spirit of if i want to do this and i'm going to make these decisions are there like questions that you ask or are there are there things that you just say like is it just intuitive 
Well, when you've been practicing it for a long time, it might become intuitive. And I think we forgot bright colors because you had mentioned mm. that, but I'm not sure if I did. But uh, I think what in our field, what we say is, uh, what's the most important thing that someone needs to know or do? What do we want them to learn? Or what experience do we want them to have? And then that will be um, will influence the decision. So for example, I know in a um, course that I teach about uh, in the lesson on visual hierarchy, I have a graph and um, a lot of clutter on the screen. And so I want people to, I'll say to myself, okay, here's a graph that I want people to look at, but I need them to understand it. So what do I need to do to help people understand it? I need to put a title above the graph so they know what it is. That's the very first thing they'll see. Then, uh, then they can go down because we look from left to right and top to bottom, or and that's how we read. And so I, I decide, like I, I stop and think, what do I want them to notice first? For example, if I wanted them to notice the graph first, I'd make it really large, colorful, and that would be a, you know, the very first thing they would come to. Then they would have to scan down and read the title to see what it's about. So I will stop and think, well, I'd like them to know the title first. Then when they look at the graph, they'll know what it's about. And beneath it, I'll have an explanation so that if they're really interested and they really want to know the details, they can read the explanation or they can just keep looking at the chart and, you know, uh, their perception will kind of, and their um, visual literacy will help them figure it out. Uh, yeah. So the, the very first thing we want to know is like, what's the learning objective here? Yeah, absolutely. Just so you know, some of the, some folks in the chat have been adding to our, our list. Uh, we've got oh, good. Uh, Christy is saying contrast. Jane is saying being drawn to people or animals. Um, mm. And we even had someone say that, that Richard on LinkedIn said, I'm loving this. You guys are changing my mind. I'm going to give this a try. I, I'm not exactly sure what we're changing Richard's minds about, but Richard, thank you. We're glad that we're helping. I'm guessing Richard maybe wasn't feeling very confident. And um, maybe he's feeling like he can do it. And you know what, Richard? I know you can do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Connie, can we, can we get maybe a little bit science nerdy for, for a little bit? If we must, yes. If, if we must. Well, I'm, I'm really curious. As I, was, I So I pulled out, as I mentioned to you, uh, I pulled out your book because I'm like, you know, I'm like, I was looking at your, your bio in the book. And I'm like, I, that sounds familiar. And I went to look it up. And I'm like, oh, I have that book. Nice. Uh, and so I was reviewing it, and, and one of the things that comes up, I think, a lot with design is this idea of cognitive load. And it's, mm. you know, there's a ton of stuff around that, and, and we don't have to get super deep. Um, I think it would be helpful probably if we talk about what cognitive load is, and then what I, the, we'll go to the kind of conversation of, of how it impacts design and why it's so important to consider. Because I know it's something from a video perspective I talk about and mm. think about, you know, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts from a, you know, the, the design side of things, because I think it's such an important piece when it comes to learning. And I know there's so much that goes around that supports that. But so let's start out. How would you define cognitive load? Um, okay. I'm thinking how to explain it without a visual. So... <laughs> um, one, well, we have a cognitive architecture that includes, that goes from perception, you know, here's the short version, that when we perceive something, what we perceive goes into our working memory. And working memory is very short and very small. And working memory is where we manipulate information. So that if you are trying to multiply two digits by two digits in your mind, and you're kind of working it through, that's working memory. And then to a certain extent, whatever, a small amount that is in working memory goes into long-term memory. I mean, it's true, this is a theory you will never find uh, necessarily uh, the physical correlation of a working memory in the brain it seems to be spread all over the place. But anyway, also the hippocampus, but that's another thing. These are, these are theories that seem to have been uh, pretty well demonstrated in the research. So our goal, if we want people to remember a skill or to remember some knowledge, is to um, take what we've given them in working memory and then they will kind of construct it and put it into their own network of knowledge. And ideally, they'll save it into long-term memory. 
But because uh, working memory is so small and things only uh, remain in it for a few minutes, actually, I forget what the time frame is, but this is why you have to rehearse it if you want to remember someone's numbers. So the only way we can really keep something in working memory is to rehearse it. Therefore, a cognitive load or a high cognitive load overwhelms working memory because it's small. And they say that we can only process three to four bits of information at one time. So in a le typical lecture course where there's a PowerPoint screen filled with text, um, just no one's going to remember it. That usually has like eight, eight or 10 bullets. There's just no way. It's just going to fly by the person. So when cognitive load is high, uh, people won't remember much and not much will get into working memory. And that's one of the reasons why I talk a lot about getting rid of extraneous information in your designs. Because when the screen is cluttered, I'm thinking in terms of e-learning and slides uh, and video, when the uh, screen is cluttered, there are so many visual cues People don't really know where to look. Their eyes are scanning all over the place. We're not getting the uh, content that you want them to get. They're not getting the information you want to get because the cognitive load is too high. So it's just whizzing by. Did that explain it? Oh, that's that's a wonderful explanation, and it's okay. I, I well, and it, I think you know I I I like talking about this because I feel like one of the Again, the temptation is to put too much, but it's also, I think, drawing attention to the thing that's of most importance, right? Like, um, we see this yeah. in images and videos, and you know, I, I, I've definitely opened up documents and and just stared at it, and like, what am I supposed to do with this? It's just so much. Um, but but if we're focusing on learning, it's you know, again, kind of focusing that learner on the things that are most important and not letting that cognitive load get too high. You know, if you right. think, you know, going through in particular in video, you know, you're going step by step or even in a step by step process. I, 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 it's, it's such an easy thing to kind of mess up. Um, it and really think, is. So, so thank you for doing that because I think, you know, we need to understand these things a little bit better if we want to be better at our design. Um, let me, let me ask you this. So, from a kind of practical standpoint, when you're thinking about well, taking this kind of cognitive load, we've talked about some of the design principles that you know you need to know. Um, besides getting rid of stuff, are there things that you find yourself doing to to really um, kind of impact that cognitive load? Especially if you know it's gonna. There's lots of information because that's I think one of our challenges. We have so much information. We need to deliver it. It's got to get out there. But but how do you how do you parse that up in a way that's gonna make sense to someone that's not gonna cause them to just blank eyed stare at it and, and get nothing from it. Right. That's, that's a really good question. I mean, there's so many different aspects to it. One approach is to ensure that we don't overload people by prioritizing what they really, the skills that they really need to build and just doing away with what they don't need or presenting it in another format, <clears throat> giving people an article to read something like that. So what we put on the screen should be of the utmost importance. And um, some of the ways of getting around the difficulties of understanding complex systems is, or complex information is by uh, using visuals, um, using metaphors and analogies, using stories. Um, I know in video, talking heads only work for a few minutes and then you have to cut to the b-roll or show a diagram or visual so i think you know in our field we have a lot of techniques that work uh, games is another approach we have ways to uh, reduce the load uh, keep people uh, attentive you know ma maintaining attention but I think, you know, perhaps we don't prioritize or not uh, enough because it's usually subject matter experts that are helping us uh, create whatever learning experiences we're creating. And they think that uh, not all subject matter experts, but many and understandably so have the curse of knowledge and think 
that people need to know everything from the start. They can't even imagine what it's like to be a novice learner. So for novice learners, we have to really slow things down um, and have more than one learning intervention. I know this doesn't have anything to do necessarily with visuals, but it's, it's so well proven that one learning intervention is not going to be enough. So I think that we can uh, use a blended approach, some of it being visual, some of it being video, and also use other modalities that can help people get the message and really build their long-term capabilities instead of thinking about just one quick training and that's the end of it. So question that comes up here and I'm thinking about is we see in the learning field the rise of micro everything, you know, micro classes, micro video. Are, would you, are you saying that we should kind of take more of, and I don't know, like, I think it's, you, you make a video that's the right size, or you make a course that's the right size, right? But do you, so do you think we should do be more kind of chunking that way in terms of smaller chunk pieces, or is it more about kind of spaced repetition? Uh, mm. what, what would you recommend? Or is it yes, because we use <laughs> all the things in our, our arsenal? I think it, I think that a lot of those things can work. And we have to think about uh, what's the context uh, where are people doing this learning? How busy are their lives? Well, I guess we can assume everyone's busy. Um, so I don't think there's one solution fits all, but I think that we do have to think in terms of continue, you know, spaced learning, continuously uh, repeating things in new ways. If we're interested in building long-term capabilities now, kind of like the dirty little secret is that there are a lot of organizations that just are doing compliance training so they can check a box so that they uh, fulfill legal requirements. And even when you're doing that, if there's a way to show people why it's important for them, um, how it relates to their world, we'll just get a lot more done and it'll be more efficient than if we just think, oh, we can just give them a page turner, it's compliance training. So yes, cutting things up into short chunks, um, giving people the freedom to test out or to choose what they want and need to learn. Uh, making learning personalized in that way is great. I know you can't always do that for compliance training. You can uh, do test out though for compliance training. So I just think that all of those methods that so many people have put out so many good books about, um, I think we need to really take that to heart and, and apply those. Yeah, I I, lo I love that, and and you know I think it's super helpful to be aware that there is usually no one right solution here. That, right. You, like, you you know you put three different designers on a, a project, you might come up with three different solutions, and doesn't make any one of them necessarily bad. Just you know different approaches and thinking about your audience and all that. So, Connie, we're going to take a, a quick break here because uh, I want to talk about real quick the a TechSmith event that's coming up, and then we'll come back. And I think where I want to come back and is talk a little bit about design, particularly for presentations and PowerPoint, mm. because I know a lot of information is getting shared that way. And it's, you know, for learning purposes, but for a lot of purposes. Uh, and I think it relates well to our audience. So real quick, before we talk about that, though, for anyone that doesn't know, we've got an event coming up on October 5th called Level Up. Uh, it's about workplace communication. So how can you use actually some of the things that Connie's been talking about just in your day-to-day -day communication? You know, we send a lot of emails, we have a lot of meetings, all these things are happening, but are there better ways to do it? So I'm gonna play a little trailer video and we'll be right back in just a second. The way we communicate in the workplace is evolving. If you're not using videos and images, your coworkers may be confused or left behind. Join us for Level Up a free four-hour digital event where we'll tell you how and why you can improve your workplace communications with visuals. Whether you are new to using visuals or are looking to build on your existing skills, we're here to help you level up. On October 5th, you'll walk away with the tools and knowledge to communicate more clearly and save you and your coworkers a lot of time. So join us to level up. All right. So nice. make sure make sure you sign up if you haven't signed up yet. There's it's uh we got two times we got one one for the kind of our European or if you like early mornings or if you want one a little bit later in the day because you don't like to wake up or you're on the West Coast. Uh, although if you're in Australia, 
we apologize. It's still, it's, neither time is good for the Australians. Um, so before we get to the PowerPoint question, Connie, I want to, a question came in, I think is, is a good kind of, uh, before we move on to the kind of next subject, Charles on LinkedIn is asking, how important is standardization with instructional design across a learning element or course? And, um, you know, we'll put this in terms of like visuals. If you got, you know, uh, a bunch of courses necessarily, how important is it to standardize uh, across the element, across the learning elements of those courses? And, well, and, and Charles, if I've mis in, misinterpreted your question, let us know in the chat for sure. Before I answer that question, I did want to say one more thing about the previous topic that we were talking about, uh, and it has to do with user-centered design, which I failed to mention. And, and that could be the most important aspect or equally important to getting your design right. And that is testing it on users, uh, embracing an iterative model at first so that you can get the feedback you need to ensure that people understand it. Working in a vacuum is probably the worst way to design. So you have to be in touch with your audience members. Now, back to that question. I think standardization is pretty important. I know people get bored by with using the same templates over and over and over. So maybe there's some kind of happy medium. When user interface design was first, you know, or in the early days of user interface design, they would always say the user interface should be transparent to the user. And if we can achieve something like that, where our designs are somewhat transparent to the user, they know what to do, they're familiar with them, um, they, they're just not confused that every time they look at a, a new screen, um, there's something totally different going on and it's a completely new design. So we have to balance that with boring people and not being um, exciting and engaging enough visually. One of the ways I think is best to standardize is to create a style guide with the palette that you're going to choose. And you know, it, it can be somewhat flexible uh, with the style of buttons, with well, all the user interface elements. Uh, this is what designers in every other field, product designers, website designers do. They have these material uh, style guides and they figure it out. It may have to evolve and it may have to change, but there's a consistent typeface and you know what you're going to be using for your headings and for your body text and the line spacing. And all of that is figured out up front. So that allows you to standardize and make things consistent. And I do have to say that I think we could possibly be the only field where we don't think of ourselves as designers. Um, the only design field that doesn't think of ourselves as designers. But uh, instructional designers are designers. We create something out of nothing. And that's a great definition of design. So you are a designer. Uh, and you can work like other designers. Make a um, Make some standards, uh, make a style guide, and work like other designers work. Yeah, I love that. And it seems like if you do that and you're following those things, that when you do break the rule or you break it, it then it just draws a lot of emphasis to it, right? So that's a exactly. great way to, to, to use that to your, to your advantage. I do find... And maybe it's me because, uh, you know, it's me. Uh, but I, I think there's like a lot of instructional designers that I've known like, oh, gosh, style guides are so because it is it is kind of boring, right? Like you want to make something. So you want to get I, right into it, right? Yeah. You jump right in, yeah. But every time I, I do fall, have those best practices, I have those things like, I, you know, at the end of the day, I love it because it makes my job easy. Like I'm not, I'm designing the stuff that is meaningful and not worrying about, well, which font should I use this time? And not only that, of course, it's important when you're working with a team so that things are consistent. But even when you jump back into a project a year later, which you always do, because you always need revisions or someone always finds an error, error, um, you can go back and see, oh, this is what I was doing. Even sometimes if I'm working like juggling three projects at once and working on a really long project, that style guide will help me know what to choose um, just because I forgot because I had if it, you know too many balls in the air at the same time. So it is a little boring and you can like, but if you write one, then you can take that and just revise it a bit or modify it for the next one. So it's worth it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, absolutely. Well, I work for a company that we have multiple products and trying to remember like the co the brand color for Ooh. every pro like the hex code. I just I can't do it. So I've got to have oh. ways to to know what those are and and when we are we are and are not supposed to use them. So um, cool. uh, another comment that came in is uh, again for Christy on YouTube. He said people need to be able to recognize and feel familiar when approaching a new training a new training material. If that familiarity is already there, they can focus on the content, not having to, to get comfortable with this, which it makes total sense to me. It does, and it reduces cognitive load. I mean, I'm not one to you know. Uh, I would be bored if I had to make everything look exactly the same. But it's really not about me. It's about the audience. So you know, you try just try to find a happy medium. But you, we do not want people to be confused with every new course. I agree. Yeah. So Peter was asking a question. Just a, he says color palette set up front. So I'm guess I'm assuming colors are part of this your design document before you design whatever you're designing. They are, and I'll admit, you know, sometimes I'll go. This didn't really work out, and then I'll change it, and I'll go back to the style guide and change it there. So what I'll usually do is make the colors, um, you know, little circle, colored circles, and have a, a few, uh, one or two main colors, uh, an accent color that would be a complement. So with blue, it would be orange. Just look at a color wheel and look for something that's going to, you know, be a highlight across the the color wheel. And then um, some, a few neutrals, a few neutral colors, very light neutral colors. And I remember about a year or two ago, someone I was working with said, hey, can you design some slides for me? Because, you know, I'm giving a presentation. I don't know how to do it. And so the, the back in her slide deck, I just made all the background solid, you know, light gray, light blue, maybe a light green. I can't remember. And she said, this is it. This is what you're designing for me. And then after she made all her slides she goes oh thank you now i get it you know you, you just it, the background can just you know be neutral and you don't people don't have to think about it it doesn't you, we don't want it to jump out at us and that's because people uh, when we perceive a two-dimensional graphic our brain um, divides it into foreground and background and the foreground is going to be where the elements and objects are and the text and that's most important so we want the background to recede Anyway. Yeah, no, I, 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 I love it. And w one of the things, and I keep putting off the PowerPoint question, although you just talked about PowerPoint a little bit, oh. is I'm wondering, because we're at a point in kind of the world where we, we have access to a lot more design and we're seeing design on a daily basis, you know, like Google has come up with their design uh, elements and their design, you used a word, I can't remember what it was. Um, material, material design. Yeah, the material design, right? And so we see these common elements all over, like one that, you know, the hamburger menu, which is the th for people that don't know the hamburger menu, it's three lines and you click on it and, and it, it expands. And, and so we see these a lot more. Sh should we be borrowing from the kind of the world around us, especially because we live in a technology age where there are lots of elements that have, people have spent a lot of time already designing? Right. Uh, does, that, does that make sense to do that, do you think? I think it does. And I did an interview, I'm editing it now with Hadia Nuruddin about quality assurance. And she was saying how, you know, everywhere else, um, there's a standard for how to save something, how to, you know, click on, uh, like you're saying, the hamburger menu, responsive menu. And um, you probably, you know, unless there's a, we're designing intentionally. So unless you have a reason to not do that, it could be for accessibility, uh, there, there could be other reasons, but unless you have a reason to not use what the rest of the world is using, then I would use it because um, people already know that. So it's, it would help you make the user interface transparent to the user. Yeah, I love that. And that's, that should be our, our, I think, our roles, making the communication of this information easier for them, right? And, right. Uh, I know uh, I'll pick on my wife a little bit, but she she is not a tech person. I am a t like I'm steeped in the wool tech person. She is not, and she every time a website changes, she's like, "Why did they change it?" Because they they messed up her understanding of the flow and the access, and and that's what we don't want to create for our users. And sometimes I get we have to make changes because it's going to actually be better. But yeah, so that's getting back my head. I'm just thinking about my, my poor wife when she's like, I, I think I used the word hamburger menu. You just click on the hamburger menu. What's a hamburger <laughs> menu? It is an odd name. Yeah. I mean, I know it's supposed to look like a hamburger, but it freaked me out the first time I heard it too. 
<laughs> but you know, um, everyone has uh, mental models, thousands of them for how the world works. And if our mental model, like your wife's mental model of how the website should work is different than the designer's conceptual model, then we say it's not intuitive and we can't figure it out. And when our the uh, designer has the same conceptual model as your mental model, that's when we say, oh, this is intuitive. It's easy to use. They don't even need to look at the documentation. So we really have to think about our users' mental models as designers and test things out on people and see what they do. One thing I see a lot of the large corporations doing is sometimes being too clever. You know, they mm -hmm. think it's really cool or they think they're a genius, but actually, did they really test it out on people? You know? Yeah. Yeah, clever will get you, I think, in design every time you think, oh, this is such a great idea. And that's when I know I, uh-uh, don't, don't do that math. That's when I get in trouble. So true. So true. <laughs> well, before we get to our speed round questions, this, let's just talk about PowerPoint as a medium. And you mentioned, like, you know, the simplicity of the background. I guess, what would be your advice for, for people who are doing this? Because I see, you know, obviously there's just the, the, the visual design of, of information. But we see a lot of people also using PowerPoints to use, like they record videos. It's not even a live presentation. They're using it just to convey in this kind of medium. And that's maybe slightly different. But what advice would you give to, to our listeners and to anyone that's going to hear this in the future um, about what makes for a good design when it comes to PowerPoint? And, and maybe even if it's, maybe it's different if it's learning versus just pure information delivery versus some other mm -hmm. purpose. But I'm, I'm curious. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. PowerPoint, when, they, when it came out, and it still has it, you know, it has a template with a title at the top and text or bulleted text below. And that's been the downfall of uh, you know, humanity, that template. <laughs> so if, if you take all of that away, I mean, you can have it sometimes, but I'll always make sure I have a slide master that's a blank canvas. And it's not that I want to, you know, make people have to look at something new every moment. But first of all, in a presentation, we're not as worried. In fact, we're not worried about the user interface because uh, you're the person manipulating it. So you're just going to uh, click, <laughs> go ahead to the next slide. So you have more leeway there. And if you're using a nice big image, we, we may not need to have a title at the top. Sometimes we do scientific engineering, perhaps. Um, there's some research that shows having a big long sentence that tells what you're looking at, you know, can be helpful in, in tech, very technical complex fields. But I would think of uh, the slide as, as a canvas and you may come up with two, three, four different approaches. Perhaps you're making a lot of comparisons. So you want to divide things into two. You can make a template for that. So stop and think through uh, the different types of uh, presentations, content, um, information that you're that you're going to be presenting, and perhaps make a few templates for that. But you don't need to have title at the top and bullet points. One other quick thing is, in fact, I just um, updated an article on the eLearningCoach.com that's called um, Six Alternatives to Bullets. And one of the main things you can do is take those bullet points. And, tr and not that there's anything wrong with using them some of the time, but it gets really boring uh, when it's continuous. So I would uh, transform them into graphics. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. And it, it's, it's in the article. It's right on the front page right now. Um, six alternatives to bullets, I think is what, it, what it's called. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I am, I mean, personally, I'm a fan of having way more slides than anyone thinks I need just, but right. I go through them quickly. Right. And so I love this idea of taking the bullet because I'm not a fan of bullet points and try to be more visual, but I, so I love that idea of thinking about like, okay, we've got, if we have six ideas, how can we make those talking points, but that people, you know, are going to hopefully remember more than, uh, you know, a bunch of words. Cause I, I never remember the words. So those are, those are great. That's great advice. Thank you so much. One other quick thing about that. If you have six bullet points, you can just put one point per slide. I'm sure that's what you're doing. And that's why you have so many slides, right? Yeah. 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 I'm just like, if it's one point per slide and you know, the only, the most, I guess, dense slides I have usually if it's a graph of data, right? Like I've got to show a 
some kind of chart. But uh, so I love that. I love the idea of just keeping it simple. I love the idea that you don't maybe even need uh, kind of text. I, I think I use it more as a placeholder for me because when I'm presenting, it's like, oh, yeah, this, that's what this one's about. It's about this. Let's talk about these right. five things or whatever or the one thing. So, well, Connie, this has been amazing. We'll, we'll see if any other questions come in from our audience. So feel, if you're watching live, feel free to, to post those. But let's, why don't we go into our speed round? We got to, we, we, we even made a little video for this. Uh-oh. All right, Connie, speed round. It's really easy. The idea is quick, uh, quick answers. We don't need to go long on them. My first one is, uh, we'll just see, uh, any, any more books coming our way for anything on your, you got, you got the next book ready to go or you're thinking about something? I'm thinking about writing for instructional design. I made a, a small ebook about it uh, that people can download from my site. Uh, we have to write about in 10 different types of writing at least. And there's no one teaching us how to do all this different type of writing. So that's what yeah. I'm thinking about. I, I'm not committing. Yeah, no, no, no commitments here. That's that's fine. That's that's great. And I, and I, before I forget, if someone wants to find your books, you know, we've got this one here, and and you have the other one there, so you can if you want to hold it up. Where where would they? Where's the best place for them to go check out? Uh, to go check your books out. Wait a second. Here we go. <laughs> um, well, it's just strange site. It's called Amazon. Oh yeah, and, perfect. Uh, it's called there. I don't know why. Yeah. So, you know, a question I had about that, because uh, this book that I have is very visual. It is. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a beautifully done. There's beautiful art pieces in it. Does it translate to the Kindle well? Probably. I don't think so. I think back then it was published in 2009. They might have. I think they published it again in 2011. Um, I can't remember, but I think they didn't really know that much about Kindle publishing. Maybe they redid it. I don't know. Uh, I should check. Yeah. I don't think I, saw, I have the Kindle version. I saw it was available, and I was like, Oh, I wonder how that works. <laughs> so probably not right. well. Let's let's get to our next question. What's something you do regularly? In and if we use the language of Stephen Covey to keep the saw sharp, especially when it comes to visual Ooh. design. Wow, my work just makes me do a lot of visual design. I just signed up for a doodle class to get better at those quick little sketches. So that should be fun. Just taking courses and you know having fun with it, learning new tools. You know, uh, I, I do you know who Dan Rome is? Dan Rome is sure. author of Back of the Napkin, and uh, I had a chance to to talk to Dan, and and yes. you know, I was doing a lot of sketch noting. I found that the one thing that made the biggest difference is me doing it, which maybe sounds counterintuitive, but if I like now I can't sketch note or worth beans, but when I was doing it every day, I was I was okay. You know, it wasn't, it, but it, right. it's a habit, and it's definitely some skills that if you don't practice it, you'll you'll lose it. So, you can get rusty at drawing. Absolutely. Uh, so, next question for you, Connie, is uh, kind of similar, but uh, where do you turn for your inspiration? So, you know, it doesn't have to be about visual design. Just where are you going to to kind of fuel the tank? Mm. Well, behind me are one hundred visual design books, so that's one place. Um, I don't know. I do yoga to refill every day. I uh, always looking at different websites and um, visual design all around me. Products are all around you. If you're riding a train, there's advertisements. I look at junk mail. I just look at everything around me. Um, I see things that I like and I say, oh, I'm going to use a, an image like that or an approach like that. To see things that I don't like and say, I'll make sure I don't do that. Do you, do you ever, are you just ever super critical when you get junk mail or something? You're like, oh, they didn't know what they were doing. Mm, I'm not super judgmental. So I'm sure many people are, but I just look, mm, no, I'm not going to use that. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Last question. And I, I will warn you this. Everyone says this is the hardest question. Oh, uh, no. It's, it's, and it's more just because I'm going to ask you to turn the tables on me. What's something that you would like to ask me, if anything? Ooh. Yeah, how did you get into vid doing video? A great question. So uh, in grad school, I had about this much of a taste of video. Like we had to do these projects. Mm. I actually uh, was doing like flash animations when flash was a thing. Remember that? Um, oh, yeah, I think I do. Yeah. Yeah, way back when. Last uh, year. 
yeah, well, for some people, not for me. Flash was a long time ago. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of left that world. I was doing health and safety training for a lot of compliance training for a pharmaceutical. And uh, actually, my, some of my first videos were coming when I came to TechSmith 15 years ago. I wow. uh, was an instructional designer making tutorial videos for Camtasia and Snagit. And then uh, started just along that way, learning a lot about video and learning that it was something I really enjoyed and particularly learned that I enjoyed helping people to get better at it. Even, you know, it's interesting. I think there's some kind of expectation, kind of like we expect you, maybe you to be an artist. Like, oh, we expect you to be so great. It's like, well, I'm okay with video. I'm not the greatest. Like we have a video producer who is so good. Actually, both of them are so good. And I'm like, I can, I can do some video. I can hold my own when it's instructional, but if you want, High quality Hollywood style. Not I'm not that, uh, right. but I just I've, I've just kept kind of working at it and talking about it and you know having people ask me questions make me learn more because I don't know everything but but I, I sure enjoy it so. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I was thinking about that from the start, so that was easy for me. Yeah, perfect. So there <laughs> we go. Well, Connie, thank you so much for for joining us today. We we appreciate just your insights, your thoughtfulness about the the, the answers to your que the questions, and uh, I'd like to encourage everybody to go check out your books. I saw that uh, Christy uh, Coteven just put it on his his Amazon wish list for his birthday. So you know, maybe maybe someone will hook him up, or maybe you know he'll he'll get it soon. So thank you Thanks. so much once again, Connie. Uh, you're welcome because we didn't get a chance to talk about this before. I'm going to wrap up the show, but you're welcome to hang around or if you need to go, totally understand. So, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. What a great opportunity to learn more about visuals because I, I hope everyone out there is thinking about how they're applying visuals to their learning, to their marketing, whatever it might be, because there's such great opportunities and even in their communication just day to day. I know I love receiving an email that has good visuals in it. It makes my job understanding that so much easier and hopefully much less to read. So again, if you if you saw something on the show, you heard something you liked, you want to share about that, please do. You can tag me on LinkedIn. You can tag TechSmith or just use hashtag the visual lounge. And if you've got comments or feedback you want to send to us directly, questions, maybe people that you want to recommend for us to interview or people that we want to give a TechSmith high five, which we, we didn't do this week, uh, feel free to email us at thevisuallounge at techsmith.com. Thanks everybody. We'll be back. Mel Milloway, she used to work at Amazon. She works at Miro now. She'll be here next week. We're talking with her about customer education and creating better customer education. So we'll go see everybody next week. <laughs> <laughs>